It was great having Philip on the podcast. He's just such a smart dude with great stories of learning from absolute legends. And uh, we look forward to to have him on because it felt like this was just scratching the surface of the stories he could tell us. So thank you so much, Philip, for taking the time after a long day of tomograph training to come and share some of your knowledge with all of us. I'd also like to give a shout out to Zach, a buddy of mine I work with who has a lot more knowledge on audio engineering than I do and took the time to kind of help edit it. We are recording in a new area, which brings new challenges with the audio. Some of the volume levels were a little different, so he took the time to kind of help level some stuff out and clean up. But thank you, Zach. If you got a moment, please head over to our Instagram, Facebook page, or our YouTube. All If you search Tree Thinking, you could you can find all of them. Take time to follow us or uh, communicate with us there. We, we love getting feedback. It helps us create a better product and it, you know, lets us know if you, what you guys are interested in hearing and whatnot. So feel free to reach out and give us some information. Some of us will also be at the uh, Naom competition in Southern Oregon this weekend. So hopefully we see you guys there. If you see, see any of us there, say hi and feel free to give us a little feedback there. We love hearing what we could do better and what we're doing good. So that, that will help us get better information out to you guys. So thank you so much for listening and we're going to take care of some business and then we'll get right to it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or unsighted copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. Think about the trees and what they know. Don't think about what us humans think is good for trees, what's good for trees. You know, it's a big difference. And and yeah, we've learned some things and certainly there are things that the arboricultural world does that are beneficial for trees. But if we never showed up, there'd still be trees here, guaranteed, you know, and, uh, and they're still managing. All right, we're back. Engage. It's been a little bit, but uh, here we are again. We were doing a training for tomography today with Philip Van Wassemner. Is that right? That's right. All right, I got it right on. Um, and it was an awesome training, a lot of good information uh, being shared. And so we sat down and, or we decided to sit down and do a podcast uh, after we're done with it. So here we are. But uh, before I get too far into it, I'm Andrew. I'm Nathaniel. I'm Gritz. I'm Albie. And I'm Philip. Awesome. Well, it's great to have all you guys here. It's been a little bit since we did one of these, and there's a couple new people here. I don't think we've had Than on nope. or Nathaniel on any of these. And uh, Philip is uh, passing through the area, giving trainings, and so it's great to have you here. Thanks for thanks for coming by. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was a uh, kind of fun how it came together. You know, we don't really have a whole lot planned for it. But, uh, yeah, if it's anything like today, it'll be a good conversation. Impromptu. 
impromptu meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Did I hear a squish? Oh, yeah. It, it's a trademark <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> it's after five o'clock now. Yeah. It's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about potential subjects for this conversation, and it seems like advanced tree assessment is a good theme to at least start off on. You know, we did a day of tomography training, which was awesome. It was great to see how that machine works. I've heard a lot about it, but I've never actually had it explained. Definitely not to that level. So I felt like I got a lot out of that. Um, but I was also intrigued about some of the, you were talking about doing pull tests and how that was one of your preferred methods of testing a tree out. And uh, I guess, how did you get into the advanced tree assessment? Well, it's kind of a, a lifelong um, pursuit in a way. Uh, one of the underlying parts of my career as, a, as an arborist has been conserving trees. I've always had that as a focus. Removing was never a big interest of mine, but preserving trees was. And so in pretty much figured out pretty soon if I was going to convince people to keep trees, I had to make sure that they were good trees and risk-free trees. So um, it's been an interest of mine throughout throughout my arboriculture career. So yeah, um, and, and tree risk assessment in North America, I found, you know, 20, 25 years ago was getting kind of stagnant in a way. We, we had some guidance. There was uh, Jim Clark and Nelda Matheny's Hazard Trees in Urban Environments. Um, the first sort of advanced method that was introduced to us was the, the drill, the uh, resistance drill. And I bought one of those in the late 90s and started to work with it, but found it had some limitations. I had some concerns about drilling into a tree when I was trying to diagnose its health or its well-being. And so that sort of started me on a journey for looking at at other methods, and um, the Europeans had certainly started to move ahead of us at that time. So yeah, uh, tree risk assessment's been a pretty integral part of, of my career, looking at trees, um, and I started to, well, in 2001, uh, Kim Coder organized a conference in Savannah, Georgia, that was called uh, How Trees Stand Up and Fall Down, and I thought that was kind of right up my alley, and that was a wonderful conference. Were you there? I was there. Yes. Well, we didn't see each other at that time. No, we, we weren't. But uh, what year was it? Uh, that was um, uh, 9/11, 2001. Wow. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And and speak of you know amazing urban forestry, Savannah, Georgia. Every in this one section of the uh, the, the city, there's uh, every other block is an urban park. Wow. With beautiful wow. trees and uh, access, uh, you know, you walk a block and you're in a park. What a concept. Mm. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. All, all, all of these arborists walking around going, wow, we could have this. <laughs> yeah. I How, wish we could have this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's what I think of when I think of an urban forest. Yeah. You know, I think of enough natural areas or park areas where actual trees can, so that, you know, uh, birds can kind of, could migrate from park to park or, you know, you see these cities where it's just all, 
you know, and then they say the urban forest is, you know, just these trees growing next to the street. And I mean, it's better than nothing. And you, you need those trees. I mean, there's huge effects for the heat island effect. I mean, the last five years I've been dealing with all that and, you know, it's a huge importance, but you know, it's funny because the term urban forestry in my mind should include the water, mm-hmm. you know, should include the, the bushes around, you know, the understory trees in the natural area. You know, you can't just look at a tree by itself and call it a forest. A forest is a lot. When we look at a forest or when we talk about a forest, we don't talk about a single tree. We talk about a forest, which is a whole association of plants and uh you know, like you mentioned, the water, the soil, the, you know, so many different things. It's an ecology. It's, a, yeah. it's an ecosystem. And I like to think of a, you know, good urban forest management looks at the city as an ecosystem type approach. So, like you mentioned, you can't just have a successful urban forestry with just street trees because you need... You know, that's a very small portion in, in most urban forests. The municipality or the urban trees are a pretty small percentage of yeah. the whole urban forest. And yeah, if you can get further ahead with it and connect things, you know, look at at um, connectivity between natural areas and riparian corridors. I mean, that's all really part of urban forestry, for sure. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's... Uh yeah, it's such an important thing, but here I go already getting sidetracked from tree risk assessment. <laughs> but so, yeah, that, that, that conference in Savannah, Georgia, and it's, uh, it's so funny to find out that Nathaniel was there. Um, it was also the first time that uh, there was an English introduction to these tree pulling tests. And Eric Brody came over from Germany, and I... One of the main reasons I went to the conference was that he was going to be there. I had, there had previous to that, there had been one English language article written about tree pulling tests, and I'd read that and never seen another thing. So, really piqued my interest to go and see him um, speak about it. And of course, there was a whole lineup of different speakers there. Uh, Carl Nicholas was there. Um, Kim Coder did some stuff. And it's still actually an interesting publication to this day. The ISA has the publication. Mm-hmm. It's the conference. Um, the fellow from Australia talking about wind, uh, oh, Ken yeah. James. Ken James, right? Yes, was, I, I just I got so much from that. Uh, just about tree movement and the effects of pruning and uh, it, it was it was eye opening. It was so eye opening. He was yeah. at the ASCA conference in Palm Springs. Remember? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was that was the first. I think that was also you know the first introduction uh, of Ken to North America mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know his all his study and his work on mass dampening and how how the canopies dissipate energy through movement of small branches and larger branches. Um, yeah, all these things are, you know, different areas, and that's one of the wonder thing, wonderful thing about that type of conference, and I think Kim Coder's vision at that time was to, uh, he saw stuff happening elsewhere, and he said, let's get these people to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say somewhat regrettably that those influences haven't, haven't blossomed as much as they could. It's now... 21, 22 years later, and a lot of those concepts are still sort of um, 
underrepresented or underexplored um, in North America. Yeah, I mean, you look at the ISA study guide and you, you go, wait a minute, we can go a lot deeper than what you're, I mean, it's, it's introductory level and whatnot, but there's, not, I don't, I haven't looked at it, but I don't think there's a lot about mass damping and, or any of that. We want people to pass the exam, remember? Yeah. We, want to, we want more certified numbers. <laughs> and speaking the of the ISA exam, there's, there's not tree identification. I oh mean, talk, talk about a travesty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's, what's, yeah. I'm sorry. This is supposed to be a soapbox, but I, I don't want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I... know this is all music to my ears, saying mm -hmm. other, hearing, yeah. hearing other people say these things, which I think about a lot, so... Yeah. It, it, it's all good points, and I've definitely been critical of the ISA on this podcast before, and it's not because I want to put down the ISA and I'm trying to cause problems, but if you're going to hold yourself as kind of the benchmark on for our industry then i think it's on all of us to hold you to a high level of integrity amen you, keep I mean, on preaching there yeah no well that's a really important thing that's how you know that's how you keep quality within an industry and our industry is so unique because we don't have trade unions we don't have these things that traditionally hold that line well you, said you know so it's on us to hold that line for each other and I, I think that's true, and I think, um, you know, that's some of the downfall of our international ISA is that, and, you know, we can find ourselves in places like this amongst this group of people where we can say that, that, you know, there's much more going on than what that, what they're bringing us. And, uh, but it's also a big challenge because this is a big country, uh, and I've yeah. been all over it, and, you know, some communities, arborist communities are really switched on in certain areas and others are not as switched on and some areas aren't switched on to what we're talking about but have another focus and so it's tough for an organization to be the center point of all of that but yeah. nonetheless That's um, a good point. They, they do have you know taken on a role to be the sort of the lightning rod or the guidance for our industry and yeah I think it's okay to hold them hold their feet to the fire and ask for better yeah uh, always and and we, at the same time say hey i've learned a lot from them i you know i love the climbing competitions the camaraderie i love the conferences you know i mean you guys are talking about a conference you guys went to and are still jazzed on the information you heard all these years later that was Absolutely. kim coder though not necessarily the isa fair enough <laughs> <laughs> isa did publish the proceedings and they are still available yeah yeah <laughs> good reading yeah there you go <laughs> the truth comes out yeah. 2001 so you you were in georgia at the same time i was i went to vancouver could Remember? be it was if it was 2001 i was in vancouver with penny okay okay yeah 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 and then you went to the international conference and i went to the pnw i say well the inter well, the international one was in seattle yeah, in no, 2002 oh that was 2002 oh, yeah. But okay. the, just to be clear, this wasn't an ISA event. This was Kim Coder who organ, organized this event. It wasn't a chapter. It wasn't the oh, okay, so okay, okay. Coder's and effort was it springtime? I almost think it was September. It was September. Okay, I'm sorry. The end of September because okay. uh, um, 
the attendance was down because 9-11 happened like three weeks before. Uh, oh, yeah. There was wow. some, some international speakers who didn't come because of that um, situation. And I remember, I remember driving down. I was, uh, uh, a friend of mine was going to go with me. We were rock climbers. We, went to, we wanted to go on a rock climbing trip on the way down. And I remember, you know, I'm a fairly clean-cut guy with glasses, and my friend Doug was like big beard and long hair. And we came up to the border, and there was people with big guns everywhere. Wow. I wasn't sure how I was going to fly these two guys with a little Honda Civic packed with gear. They were going to actually let us through. But Those are carabiners, officer. Those are carabiners. They're just carabiners. <laughs> That's a rope. Yeah. We're not going to strangle anyone. No, surprisingly, we had uh, like very little inspection, and we told them where we're going. They said, "Okay, see you later." That was um, pretty surprising. It's yeah. funny because at the same time, like two weeks before 9/11, that's when I went to Vancouver, and so we <laughs> going to Canada was fine. Going back from Canada was a little bit uh, a, a little slower, I shall, shall say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But Klaus Matek had made it, so if Klaus can make it, you know. Oh, so you saw Klaus at that Oh, point. yeah. We, see, we saw Klaus, all right? Klausy boy. Klaus, yeah. <laughs> in, his, in his boots. Yeah. <laughs> Klaus in his boots. Yeah. I remember listening the to him. The boots and the glasses and the haircut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the haircut the, is definitely yeah. the haircut. Oh, he's, he's a character. I remember because he was at the international one the next year in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to the restroom and, you know, just <laughs> passing him in there and be like, wow, that guy's a character. <laughs> I go in the bathroom and then go into the thing. And then he, he comes up on stage. I was like, oh, there's that character. <laughs> you know, everybody has the same reaction when they hear him speak. Yeah. He starts speaking and you see people looking at each other saying, what the hell is he talking about? I can't hear what. And so somebody who has heard him before turns around and says, don't worry, it's all going to make sense at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It does. Everything like, you learned before is just bullshit. Now I'm going to... Yeah. <laughs> he just curses. Yeah. Oh, he uses, uses, you know, he uses profanity all the time. He doesn't care. He knows how to reach out to tree oh, people. He, 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 he knows how to hold the crowd yeah. attentive. That's for sure. Yeah. Dear Klasmatic, you know, he actually was today part of the subject when we saw that uh, that branch that had the sheer crack and the you know the um, uh, the hazard beam hazard beam on that type failure that, that, or type uh, that's horse chestnut yeah yep. well i would say if you're looking to get into uh you know tree risk assessment mm -hmm. especially more advanced stuff start by getting his books to yeah. understand what you're looking for and what you're talking about. I mean, makes he it really very simple makes it. Too. Yes, someone like me needs books like his. <laughs> someone that can make it really simple. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Beautiful pictures. Yeah. The whole nine. Yeah, I audience. think the strength is the pictures. Now, yes. Yeah. Philip, I'm. I'm interested. Do you have other people that that you have? You know, I heard of Wesley and the conflict between Matek and Wesley, and I've, I've never understood it because I haven't dove into it. Well, there's, you know, that's an interesting subject. Uh, I mean, there's been ongoing, uh, yeah, fights, difficulties. Peace contest. Um, <laughs> yeah, difficulties, let's say, in some of these um, German uh, leaders. And in the end, I think... A lot of it is 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 about ego and about um, 
even worse, possibly selling selling your mm. your machine or your approach and and out competing the other person. We've never seen that happen. We've never seen. That. <laughs> no, no. But, no, what I, what about? I, I would say with Klaus, um, you know, Klaus's work with the body language of trees is seminal seminal arboricultural historical information that's still very relevant today and the pictures, the diagrams, the descriptions, just teaching us what the things we see on trees could mean and looking at trees carefully and looking at trees through a more um, a lens of understanding. What I, I would be remiss if I did in the, in the discussion about Klaus is that um, you can pretty much throw away his equations. Um, you know, any of the, this axiom of uniform stress, uh, T over R equals 0.3 HD relationships, uh, and that's not my own personal opinion. That's his work has just simply been disproven in those areas. So there is, you know, peer reviewed. Um, Articles by people who are a lot smarter than than the people in the room here, and understand you know really the physics and the biomechanics that have shown us that you know the relationship of T over R equals P point three for example the one third rule is not a metric we should be using for all trees in in modern arboriculture and. Um, Regrettably, those you know a lot of those simple equations live on, and I think I said it to someone in the room here earlier that you know T over R plus a drill is a pretty simple approach to getting an answer, and then you look at the tree, and the tree is complex. Yeah. So yeah. simple. Or do simple answers, you know, give us something for a complex organism? Not really. Not really. Um, and we have to look at those simple approaches with some um, caution, given our understanding of the complexity of a tree. We, you know, I think a lot of a lot of folks said, "Oh, I can latch on to that," and it's 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 a really pretty simple concept. And it, it, I, I've seen that. I think a lot of that also about pruning. Just as another example, let's dumb this down and simplify it, but we're really not simplifying it, we're dumbing it down, and that, that, that's really scary. And um, you mentioned uh, other scientists' uh, names uh, or um, um, publications that... Carl that Nicholas has written about the T over R, Nicholas and Spatz. I don't have the, you know, the, the, right. the reference right now. Uh, there's also... Um, Trying to think of the name. Is it Wagner? Maybe. In any case, I can't. I, I don't yeah. have them all on the tip of the tongue. No, but there's, is, there is, is certainly, uh, if you if you start to do some literature search and look into that. Um, I remember when I went to uh, because after I met Eric Brudy at the How Trees Stand Up and Fall Down conference, um, I went. I went and you know got in his face when he was doing the presentation and uh, outdoor presentation after everybody left. I just jumped on him and started asking questions and eventually said, well, you know, if you really want to learn about this, come to Germany. You know, uh, you can stay at our office. We'll, we'll teach you what's going on. And I literally did. I went like an apprentice. I went and I, I slept on the floor of the office um, 
you know, uh, read books during the day, literature that they could point me to. I went out in the field with them to do tree pulling tests um, and slowly but surely started to take that in. Um, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think about, you know, other, you mentioned, uh, you asked about other sources, you know. Um, I think it just depends on what your what part of the arboricultural panacea you want to you want to explore. You know, in the realm of uh, working with older trees and conserving trees, a lot of the work has come out of Britain. People like Neville Fay and the um, Ancient Tree Forum and groups like that. Um, Albie and I have been talking about uh, the whole veteran vet cert, veteran tree certification program, which again started with the with the sort of the kernel of Neville Fay and and um, Ted and and the Ancient Tree Forum. These people who were basically arborists like us, who had a particular interest in old trees, and in Great Britain, they're blessed with. Thousands, if yeah. not tens of thousands, of old and ancient trees. Mixed in with amazing, uh, and I think probably frustrating for some people, uh, tree preservation uh, planning, uh, uh, architecture, or um, policy. Policy. And um, I think that that's both amazing and, and very frustrating for someone who might be a commercial arborist, for instance to be dealing with, okay, I've got to go through all this paperwork in order to prune somebody's tree. I'm, on the flip side of that is probably pretty amazing what the result is, so go yeah, figure. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, in, in the UK, they have like a National Planning Act, and within that Planning Act, there's a few simple sentences and references that basically says, if there's trees on the property you want to develop, here's what you need to do. And you need to have a consultant come in, you need an inventory, you need to, you have to do these things and it's in the planning act. So that basically birthed a whole consulting industry of consulting arborists because now every project demands that. And so my country, Canada, your country in the US, I know that we simply just don't have that. So, yeah. you know, those um, in our country, they're bylaws. In this country, they're ordinances. You know, many places they don't exist at all. Some places they exist and they're effective. Some places they exist and they're not effective. Um, but universally in the UK, they had, they, and I think that that arrived into their planning policy because of a long-term ethos that trees are important. And trees will be, you know, are an important asset to to consider and to conserve. It, it's a, maybe one of the benefits of having a monarchy that has existed. In you know, it, it, sometimes monarchies are nasty things. You know? Yeah, and I mean, for example, there's a there's a um, a book. It's called the Doomsday Book, and. I can't remember which particular king it was, but when he took over governance of the whole British Isles, um, he had 
an inventory of all of the Crown's assets. Uh, this was the Doomsday Book, and to figure out what he all had and what he was managing. And that book included a lot of trees. So, you know, and this was somewhere around end of, you know, somewhere around 1100, let's say, <laughs> you know, uh, AD. One of um, the Edwards. One of the Edwards, yeah. And and so, you know, I went to visit a tree in, in the Bristol area with Neville Fay. It's called the Doomsday Oak. And it's called the Doomsday Oak because it was in the book at that time, like almost a, almost a thousand years ago, and the tree's still there. And it's this wow. reverence for these old trees, this, um, you know, veneration of old and ancient trees that has lived down through millennia in that country and and it lives on today in um you know in modern modern governance that's yeah. only 1100 years old at a minimum yeah <laughs> just yeah well I, i think they're also look you're also looking at a, a country one. that is a lot more populated uh compared to you know the the acreage they have so they have to they have to come up with something to make sure that it doesn't become the new frontier you keep it just raising trees to build and build and build. You know, they, they have to well, deal with this. I'm sure they ran into that problem a long time ago where they they cut down all their big forests and stuff for the most part. And so, you know, they're just been around long enough to hit that problem, mm -hmm. you know, because they're on that island. And it's like, all right, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. Here we have a culture, especially in the Pacific Northwest, that for a long time the culture was about removing the trees. Mm -hmm. You know, how quickly can we remove these giant trees and process them? So I'm sure we just haven't caught up to them on that perspective yet. You know? well, we have a, I think it's really good. I, I, I uh, often describe that we in North America and many places live with what I call the fallacy of unlimited resources that yeah oh well just look over there like there's just the cascades are covered in trees what are we worried about trees for you know and then you have that we have that um those riches those those resources but you're right i mean in europe they cut down trees a thousand years ago for mining and other pursuits and shipbuilding yeah shipbuilding yeah especially mm -hmm. shipbuilding but all these different things and then They became a limiting resource. They became more important. But the UK is, is particularly unique in that matter because there's no other country in continental Europe that has the number, variety, and collections of these old and ancient trees. It, it's something more. Actually, Philip, when we talked about ancient trees, I um, UK is, is really you know up in the game on that one. But I... Uh, There are many venerable trees in the rest of Europe. I received books from a, a friend of mine about the, a lot of the venerable and documented trees of Belgium, and it was like over 25,000 trees in a country that's nine times smaller than Oregon. And so... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't think they have developed that kind of a mentality and reverence for those trees the same way the, the Brits have. But it's it's coming, you know. I think it's coming. Well, and, and certainly, I, I, yeah, I've, I've been in Belgium and we've gone looking at some oh, of nice. ancient trees and they're just in old hedgerows and they're all yes. over the place. That's the thing in Europe. Like, they're all <laughs> over. And touching on what you said earlier, um, yeah, we still sort of, we are in, in the scheme of things, in the 
um, youth of our country, both my country, Canada, and, and this country, we're, we're young, we're like babies, we're infants, we're still like frontier mentality all mm-hmm. mm-hmm. out here, you know. Um, so we haven't evolved, you know, the resource hasn't become so limited. Um, but I think we as arborists recognizing that don't need to wait for the resource to have become that limited before we can embrace some of these ideas that they've developed yeah. scarcity, you know? It, yeah, we can we can lo- learn from the blueprint that's already been laid down in front of us. Kind of on that front, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts about Neville Fay and some of the retrenchment research he's done. Um, I think that's something that we've started to do here quite a bit. Oh, you got to get out of here, Albie? I'm going to have to leave. I'll see you tomorrow. Right on. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you later, man. See ya. See ya. <laughs> I think there's a lot in retrenchment that we have to learn around here. You know, it's such a fascinating idea to me because retrenchment is something that happens to trees naturally. So it's, you know, a lot of people think of retrenchment as a way to prune trees, but really retrenchment is something trees do on their own. And it's on us to help facilitate that process, you know, which is really cool because you can look at an old tree and watch how it dies back when it gets too big or when it's stretched in these ways. And so you can actually learn from the tree if you take the time to study it. And there's not a whole lot of pruning that you're learning from the tree. I mean, there is, I, I shouldn't say there's not because you can watch how, you know, what branches die back and learn where trees naturally lose their branches and stuff. But it seems in, in a certain way, retrenchment brings that to another level in my mind. Yeah, well, it's a you know there's a lot to lot to think about and talk about on that subject. Um, but you actually, I think you're cotton on to to a lot of the the kernels of it. So, you know, I like to say retrenchment is a natural process that aging trees um, will use if they have um, a habit or a propensity to grow old, to get really old or ancient. It happens with almost every species that can get really old, some form of canopy retrenchment. So that is a really good starting point, that retrenchment is a natural process. It's not something that we conceptualized and said, let's start retrenchment pruning. Um, That is not where it came from. It came from the trees and observing the trees. And I think that's a critical point in, in a lot of what we're doing and a lot of what I see, I would I would say that, um, you know, part of my mission as a lecturer, as a teacher, as a sharer of information is that I think we need to break down a lot of dogma and propaganda that's been introduced into our culture of arboriculture. And, and that why I say that is that things that I learned as an arborist and that many of us have been taught and are still taught are not what I'm seeing in trees. Yeah. Well, they're and not what you see in trees, but they're also not what you what you see in the arboriculture or in the trees themselves. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. In trees, in you know, and a lot of arborists have spent all of their time at, in their career in the urban center, working for tree service companies, being told what to do, reading some stuff. And spent enough time with trees in in you know uh, like unpruned trees in nature in settings where trees are left alone. So 
part of the again part of the you know the learning opportunity in Great Britain. So a place like the um, the Great Windsor Forest, which is the forest that surrounds the the Windsor Castle, and used to span from the Windsor Castle to the coast of England. It used to be, you know, the deer park for the for the royal family. But there are many many trees in that in that park that's still there that have never ever been touched with any kind of chainsaw, any kind of pruning saw, and they've reached a thousand or twelve hundred or fifteen hundred years old. And that's the type of place where we can observe what trees can do and learn from trees without any of the human intervention and inter interpretation. And I think that's so I'm stepping back a bit, but uh, retrenchment is a process that occurs in trees that live for a long time. Yeah. It's one of many survival strategies. Yeah. Um, so retrenchment pruning, from its early conception, came actually from... So, for example, the Ancient Tree Forum was a group of people, and they just decided, we're going to meet every once in a while, we're going to go to one of these places where there's old and ancient trees, and we're going to geek out together. You know, we're going <laughs> to talk trees. Sounds like gonna, my type of people. <laughs> we're going to look at trees. And um, one of the things that really inspired the moving forward with all of this was um, looking at what, what are called lapsed pollards. So most arborists have a concept of what pollarding is. Uh, when it's done correctly, it's pruning the tree back to one pollard head on some frequency, making proper pruning cuts there. The tree will recover those pruning cuts, but then we'll start to grow another crop of um, you know, reaction growth to that taking all the canopy off. And the idea with pollarding, which has been practiced incidentally for literally thousands and thousands of years as a tree management technique, was that you could grow a crop of similar sized wood on a regular basis. So, for example, if you pollarded a willow tree, you could cut the top off every year. You could feed that soft succulent growth to your to your livestock, and next year you've got another crop of food right there, or just weave popping it. back up. Or just weave it into. A or basket. they use it for basket weaving. Or you know they 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 do it with oak trees and you grow them to, you know, building material to mm -hmm. post size to you know there was just endless endless uses for wood and that is that's still available for us if we put our head to the grindstone and say okay uh, you know that's the way they used to do it it doesn't mean that we have to go through growing a tree to a gazillion you know di you know inches of diameter and then harvest it and run it through a mill there's there's if, if you start to thin slice how many different things we can do, it's, it's right there. And, and, the, and these techniques are, are just, you know, they have been with us forever. So if anybody has an interest in that particular side, you know, discussion and want to explore it really well, uh, there's a book that's been recently published by uh, um, Bill Logan, William Logan, William Bryant Logan, and that book is called Sproutland. Nice. And it's yeah, it's, it's an book. exploration, and Bill is just a fantastic um, author 
and been blessed with the sort of the curiosity, the interest, and the ability to convey the information. And he traveled to Spain and to Great Britain and to Japan and all across this country. Um, and born out of a need, because he had an assignment in New York where they wanted him to grow pollarded trees at the, I think it was at, at MoMA or something like that. And an archi a landscape architect said, well, in this area, we're going to have pollarded trees. And Bill was assigned to do that. And he was like, oh, God, like, what's that? What am I going to do? <laughs> am I going to do it right? This is downtown New York in a huge design, you know. So Bill then went on this exploratory you know, uh, journey and put together this book. So if you want to learn something about Pilarding and where it is and the history of it and how it's prevalent in so many cultures around the world, and to Nathaniel's point, it's available to us. We haven't lost it. Yeah. My observation is in North America, People hate pollarded trees. People, oh my God, you've destroyed the tree. And, and um, there's this ethos that's more prevalent, I find, in North American arboriculture, especially, is the what I call the champion tree myth. You know, we've got to grow the champion tree, and the best tree has the biggest trunk, the widest canopy, and the tallest, and that gets the most points, and that's the best tree. Well... Many of those trees, if we're managing them that way, we're managing them into an early death because they are going to fall apart Yeah. Uh, by having parts that are too big and even if they're cabled together and stuff. But if you grow it to get bigger and bigger forever, it's destined to fail because at some point those trees have to get old. Yeah. They have to enter into you know their later life stages. You know, uh, Pierre Rambeau brought forward these sort of life stages of trees and 10 life stages and from one to seven are the ones we're really familiar with that's from you know seedling to champion tree status big healthy vigorous but then you've got stage seven which is early ancient stage eight stage nine stage ten these are stages going from early ancient to ancient ancient tree and in those stages is where retrenchment as well as reiteration yeah occur that's what i think of when i think of giant trees is they're trees you know in the pacific northwest if i'm thinking about big giants i'm thinking about doug firs or these conifers and almost all the big ones the top ripped out sometimes hundreds of years ago and then you've got all these massive reiterations that are, you know, you got 10 trees coming off of one trunk, basically, you know, these just amazing structures. And, and each of those trees is 18, 24, you know, 36 inches in diameter. Yeah. There has been, you know, we've cut too many of them down, <clears throat> et cetera. It's like its own little forest. Well, it is. And, you know, like you say, it's its own little forest. None of those trees get that big on their own. You know, you have to be part of a grove. You know, they all protect each other from the elements and lean on each other and work with each other. So when you, if you're thinking about getting a tree to become a champion tree, it's not going to happen by itself. It's going to get too extended, like you were saying, and then it's going to have failures. And once it has a failure, then there's all this risk analysis returning to what we started with in the beginning. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> oh thanks God, for bringing us back, Dan. Thanks for reeling us in. <laughs> that, tree is, that tree just dropped a big branch. Oh, my God. It's it must problem. be dangerous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, but, 
Yeah. So there is a legitimate conversation there, though, when you're talking about trees within an urban environment, you know, because you get the trees that big and they do become legitimate, uh, you know, a legitimate threat at a certain point under a certain situation. So that's where the importance of being able to understand what a, you know, advanced tree risk assessment is. So you're, you're understanding what is a legitimate risk and what is maybe it just looks different than the other trees and it's kind of spooky. Well, I think that's, I wanted to just take you up a bit on that because yeah. I think um, the idea that just because they get big, then they become a legitimate risk problem is 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 not necessarily correct. Uh, I, w- I would agree big, with that. Big doesn't mean risky. Mm-hmm. No. It's a perfectly, um, let's say, well-developed, healthy tree growing in a, in a good environment. It can get massive and still be risk-free. Yeah. Well, I, I think where Andrew might have been going is um, perception. Perception yes. is that has a lot of whatever. Well, and and that's exactly and where I was going. But I'll even I'll even keep going just for the fun of playing devil's advocate, right? Sure. Is that when a tree gets big, and this you know all of us have worked in trees, so we all know this. When you're dealing with big wood, the forces at play are kind of mind-boggling, you know. <laughs> and so when when someone, especially that doesn't work with these forces on a regular basis sees a limb fall out and they've been looking at this limb and the limb was up 70 feet and it didn't look like a big limb and then it falls on their roof and smashes their roof and they realize wait a second that looked like a little limb that was actually a big freaking limb and there's like another 50 of them right over my house (laughs) you know they're they're but i I can but the distinction i think is and and this is what i think you know yeah playing semantics here but we're sitting here with a bunch of arborists and so we should talk about the truth about trees not not um common folks misconceptions about trees yeah that's all i i i agree with you i know totally you're correct and and that you know when we get into risk assessment it's not just the tree it's about the environment that it grows in it's about targets and the consequences of this. I, I agree. And I was kind of steering towards the risk assessment part right. because, because I think there is a legitimate conversation where like there is a lot of weight hanging out over a house or a yard. There is the potential for a threat there. And I think that's a better way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. And what, what, what I keep on saying to clients is perception is everything. Yeah. Okay. If I'm perceiving this and if my, as the owner of a tree, it's my gut instinct that I feel scared, I'm much more likely to do something foolish rather than it's my gut instinct to say, I want to learn from someone who understands this stuff. Yeah. So I think that's returning it back to the science, the unpredictability. Yep. And um, experience. Experience. Well, and the number one knowledge or the one number one way to combat fear is through knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's where somebody who has the ability to do an advanced tree risk assessment has the tomograph, has the equipment necessary to to educate someone and give them that knowledge can help save that big tree. You know, even if there's big branches, it might be like, hey, you know what? We're just going to get some weight reduction. I always like to tell people, you know, if you take, you know, the 
5, 10% off of the end of the branch. If it's a horizontal branch, you're taking 50% of the pull down on the branch off. You know, there's all these lines that when you tell someone that you can almost see the gears turning in their head and they're like, oh, oh yeah, so that, that's only a threat if I don't get it taken care of. You know, there are mitigation tactics I can use here. And that's how you, can, I think, can turn that corner uh, when talking to clients. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just trying to think. We've been wandering all over the place. Um, <laughs> we were talking about um, reiteration, um, and and you talked about seeing it in the in the trees around here. There's a very uh, you know thing about literature. There's a a paper uh, that um, Steve Sillett and Bob Van Pelt put together a long time ago, and, and the title of it was a canopy or no a, tr a tree a redwood tree whose canopy may be the most complex in the world mm -hmm. and it's this i don't even know the name of the tree that you know it probably has a name but it's a tree that has like literally hundreds of reiterations in the canopy reiterations on wow. reiterations on reiterations and true to you know, Steve, Steve, and and Bob, the way they do their research, which is super intensive, super rigorous, they they went up and they mapped this whole canopy, measured everything, and figured it all out, and then did a drawing of it. And that drawing is in that paper, and it's just phenomenal just to see all of this um, complexity that develops. And so, you know, tying into some of the subjects we've said we've been talking about. One of the driving principles of conservation arboriculture is trees are habitat. Yeah. And when you when you have a canopy that has reiterated like that, there is so many habitat niches that develop different types of things. Soil developing in the crooks of branches over hundreds and hundreds of years, and then ground plants being able to grow in that soil. You know, it yeah. just well, like you were talking about, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, the salamanders that spend their life at the, up in the canopy of redwood trees. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for that salamander, that redwood tree is its planet. Yeah. You know, like it's its world that it lives and dies in. You and know? I actually had the pleasure when we were doing some research in the redwoods with tomography to see one of those salamanders. Uh, up in the canopy and just go, oh my goodness, I'm 300 or 350 feet off the deck and the salamander is supposed to be under a log in the forest floor. Yeah. What's it doing here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but then to revisit... Perspective is everything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he liked the view. <laughs> um, but getting back to retrenchment, maybe trying to keep on some of the threads that we've been following. Yeah. So retrenchment starts out as, you know, we should understand that it's a natural process, and it does happen. But the other part, which we got to through this conversation, is reiteration. And, you know, when trees get into, trees that can get very old get to these late life stages, they start the process of retrenchment, which is shedding parts that are at the extremes, you know, at the very top, at the ends of branches partially from a structural perspective, but also as these trees get bigger and bigger and bigger, the annual, you know, that skin of cells that gets put onto the trees starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner. You know, if you have a, a redwood that has a, you know, diameter of 20 feet, that layer of cells has to get spread over that, that whole shell rather than a younger tree. So 
one of the things that starts to happen is just hydraulically it gets more difficult for water to pass up and down through the tree because the cell structures that it has to go through get smaller and smaller. Yeah. So, you know, that's just one of those things. And mechanically, um, you know, long extended branches, like you said, leverage, they tend to start breaking off. If the tree's going to live a long time, it needs its foliage. So trees that start to lose parts in the canopy create canopy gaps, get more light coming in. Um, the wounds that get created by breakage or pruning, if we, if we undertake it, um, trigger a response mechanism from the tree. You get resources flowing from stored places out to the broken area. The tree tries to start to compartmentalize, grow over wounds, etc. So that f you've got two things happening. You've got more light penetrating into the canopy, and you've got resources flowing through the tree. And most of those trees that can survive a long time also have latent or dormant buds. Not adventitious growth, not something negative. They're bud traces that are in the wood, and they're the emergency response mechanism. So when we have more light getting in there and we have resources flowing through, the tree starts to initiate this lower, um, uh, more closer to the base, closer to the main stem canopy. And that's reiteration. And so retrenchment and reiteration go hand in hand. Yeah. So now when we get to retrenchment <clears throat> pruning, retrenchment pruning is a way that we can attempt to mimic what we see in nature to manage a tree into its older age. And that can be, because it's at that stage and we want to help it along, it may also be that a tree is reaching um, the capacity for its growth site with buildings and other things around, and we don't want it to get any bigger, we want it to be its smaller self. Yeah. So, just to take it a little bit further, because I know that retrenchment pruning is a topic, it's a thing, people are talking about it, but I also know that most places I go, it's partially or wholly un misunderstood. Yeah. So retrenchment pruning, as conceptualized by Neville and Ted and some of those other thinkers, is a first, it's an iterative process. It's a long-term process. If you're talking about an organism that got to be eight or 900 years old, you can't go in today and change everything. Yeah. It has to happen over time. It, it's... Uh, Everything you say, I fully agree with, and like that's kind of how I look at retrenchment as well. But I've a couple couple things that I've been thinking about. I mean, I've I have no idea how many trees I've retrenched over the years, but I've noticed some of those trees. Like I think of you know maybe the first step of retrenching a tree if it's not having a huge dieback at first is to try to make some pretty small cuts at the top to try to shift the growth down lower. But I've also noticed sometimes when you do that, you trigger the the regrowth. It'll sprout out pretty high in the tree. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's like this balance that you want to find that I, I think it's probably a tree by tree kind of basis. But it's one of those things that I'm kind of wrestling with in my mind when I'm thinking about it of how far, you know, when I first started thinking about it, I thought it was almost bud pruning at first because you're just trying to send a message to the tree that we're going in that direction. But if I just prune and then it re-sprouts right just below those buds and those are water sprouts that are putting on tons of growth real fast because, you know, because that's what they do, <laughs> then it 
feels, you know, you got to be back to remove those water sprouts then and let it start. If you're really trying to shrink it down, and that's kind of the goal of retrenchment when you think about it is a way of kind of condensing a tree without just topping it. So there's a weird balance there. You're on it, and these are some of the challenges. But I would, you know, say the first thing is is what I was saying before that you know, if you want to start working with an old tree and 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 think about retrenchment, you got to think on a time frame that might be longer than your career. Yeah. Like you know, uh, definitely. Yeah. No, totally. Yes. Um, I I don't disagree know, with that at all. That's it, it has to happen in, in iterative stages. You have to see the tree's response. But to get to you, what you were talking about, in a true retrenchment program, the first pruning in a retrenchment should be around the entire periphery and you should be making small cuts. Like pole pruner felco cuts. Your maximum might be a one inch cut. Yeah. Maybe maximum two. Yeah. And, and you're talking about taking three maybe five feet maximum off, maybe even less than that. So it's small cuts around the periphery. You are, and you're right, that a lot of times what you'll see, because we're at, if we're starting retrenchment pruning and we're not letting the tree just retrench, we're initiating this before it's time for the tree. So the tree will have enough resources to send out new growth in those areas. So the often missed and not often talked about Second pruning in a retrenchment pruning program is to go back and thin out all that regrowth. Because the whole point of the retrenchment pruning program as it was conceptualized to be was that we are getting more light into the lower canopy. And if you let it all grow back over a year or two, you have no more light penetration yeah. and you're not accomplishing what you wanted. In fact, it might be detrimental because you're going to get all that more extension growth out on the ends, which we don't really want. So step one is small cuts on the periphery all the way around. Step two is go back and rethin some of that. Also observing, are you actually getting the reaction you're looking for? Yeah. And, and, you should also think about that before you even start a retrenchment pruning program because some trees just won't do it. So well, and the other part, just on a a, uh, a sales uh, perspective and a client um, respect kind of a level, is that, that if they have that expectation that there's going to be another bill, yeah in advance, then they're going to start to think about, okay, I'm, I'm really invested in this and this is a good process. Um, I, I worry about the, the idea of, uh, you know, coming back and, and, and saying, well, yeah, we got to do another 1,700 up there. And they go, you just did that last year. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, they start feeling like they're getting worked. Exactly. They're getting worked. That's, yeah, that's, but I but, think if you had to go back in a year, then you've picked the wrong tree to do retrenchment on because it's more than vigorous and it's, you know, it's probably not in the stage. So this whole idea of retrenchment should generally be focused on old and aging trees that are getting towards that stage. I mean, you can do it. You can, but I think if you do it in, on trees that aren't in those stages, you're probably maybe more doing reduction pruning than you're doing retrenchment pruning because it's just going to grow back again. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something to that. I've seen people put retrenchment on like a 12-inch 
or maybe not 12, but like a big leaf maple that's pretty small. And it's because I, I totally understand it. It's they're trying to figure out the client wants the tree topped. And they're trying to give them an alternative to shrinking it down. Reduction or drop crotch pruning or whatever. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with retrenchment because it's a young tree. Totally. And that I think that that's part of why I'm really interested in it because I think that it's a really good thing. I think this is a tool that every arborist should have in their tool belt, retrenchment pruning. But I think it's misunderstood because it's used as an excuse to not top a tree, which I'm all for. Like, hey, if we can have excuses to not top trees, that's awesome. But we need to fully understand when we're selling a retrenchment, what does that mean? Because you don't want the definition of retrenchment to go from what it is, which is not even a pruning thing. It's a natural process from, of a tree to all of a sudden arborists hijack this term well, and, I, and double it up for drop crotching or something. You know, uh, it's already happened. Yeah. Retrenchment is so poorly understood in most places. I think you're, you seem, you know, and I know in the Pacific Northwest, there's been more influence. Neville's been here. There's been other people thinking about it. You've come to it yourselves. You have reiterating canopies in old trees. You have old trees around you. Yeah. Um, but it, I think that's really a, a chronically, critically important thing. is executed on trees that might retrench. It's not executed on a young tree. If you do it to a young tree, the young tree still wants to grow. It's, it's going to keep growing. It's not in yeah. that phase. You well, know? And, and I think the, the final uh, wording is that words are incredibly important and definition and yeah. clear definition of what does this mean is lost on a lot of people. And, 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 and saying that it's not well done or well understood or the term isn't well used, you know, don't take that as a criticism per se. It's, it's a, it, because it's a new thing. And what I saw, I was delivering lectures in the UK in 2018 at the British, you know, National Arborist meeting. And I actually had to go up at my talk, which was talk, you know, reduce the crown, retain the tree, talking about retrenchment, reduction, all that stuff. And at the start of it, I had to actually, in the UK, where all this came from, <laughs> correct one of the previous speakers because he came up and he talked about, oh, I'm doing all this retrenchment pruning and it's so fantastic. And we, but we've seen varying results. And what he was showing was massive crown reductions, taking big bits off trees and all this stuff nothing to do with retrenchment pruning. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to be careful. And and the terminology really is important. And I've seen it more often abused and misused than I have seen seen people actually understand it. And the, the same with Pollard. Yeah. Pollard. Well that's another let's go top a tree and call it Pollard. Yeah. People don't understand that when you start a Pollarding cut, even though it looks like after years it looks like it was a big cut. It was probably a one or two inch cut when the first cut was made and then the tree grows into that height and yeah. shape. It doesn't you don't just take a giant tree, bring it down and be like, Well, I'm Pollarding it now. It's like, no, that's topping it. That you can't you know, yeah. you're trying to polish a turd is what you're trying to do and it ain't gonna work. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And so all of these things are you know, and I think that's also we spoke earlier about where we are in, in our cultures, in our societies and being, you know, 
like we're starting to get more in our arbor culture and in these discussions much more refined into special areas where you know let's face it not that long ago what did anybody think about trees cut them down put them in the limb in in you know turn them into lumber and build a house with it so especially around here yeah it it does take time but um you know so if i'm a bit passionate about this subject it's because i have had to try and i've been trying to bring the understanding for a long time but and and then it's somewhat dismaying when you see people picking up the term but calling something completely different using that term. So, um, and, and so, yeah, retrenchment is, you know, Neville and those folks talked about when they first conceptualized, it's, it's, a, it's a long-term process. So your, your, your pruning plan for one of these older ancient oaks could be a 50 or 100-year plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, your clients may see you again, but in retrenchment, they should probably only see you in five to yeah. seven years the first time, you know, and maybe longer. But you you also said something that was, um, I think, correct, and that is that the long-term goal of a retrenchment pruning program is to make a tree smaller and allow it not to self-destruct. So I started to talk earlier where this all came from. So that, you know, I talked about the pollards. Well, you know, pollards were grown all over the world and managed and for thousands of years. And then we, we came into the, you know, the Industrial Revolution and we started to have these different methods where we could cut big timber and run it through saws and manage it a different way and then cut it into smaller pieces. Well, we used to grow it to the, the size we needed rather than take it out of a bigger tree and, and make it smaller. Um, but so starting... 150, 200 years ago, we started to see that the practice everywhere of everyone polarizing trees and managing them started to slowly disappear. And so some of the trees that um, initiated a lot of this thinking that we're talking about today were what they called these lapsed pollards. They were pollards that had been worked for hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years. And then we're just not doing this anymore. The trees persist, they keep growing because they're vigorous. And, and what they found is that they would find these huge trees that were clearly old pollens <laughs> and they're self-destructing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So all of this thinking that we're, that we're talking about today was born out of a thought that we see these trees, they're old and ancient, they have all this history, history of the pollards and of being managed, but they've been let go. And if we just let them go, we know they're going to self-destruct because most of them have hollow stems because they've gotten so old and they can get big and hollow because their load is always being taken off. So the idea was how can we start to manage these trees to get smaller so they don't self-destruct? And that's where this all came from. So the objective is generally, and you know, one of the things I say is in my lectures is always old trees must get smaller. Yeah, if should, they're going to the, survive, it should be the main selling point. I mean, that seems to be often what people say when you go for a estimate, or even when you're doing the work. People are like, "Hey, can you make that tree as small as possible?" Well, you can, but it's over time. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's really interesting, though, because I mean, I think you bring up a great point because it's what it's one of the biggest challenges for us is how are we going to 
you know, convince this person that wants the tree topped, you know, that there's better ways to do it. And it's what, it's what's best for the tree to bring, to bring it down. And cause it, over a long time, it, it's going to want to be a smaller tree. So really the desired outcome is the same for the for the person that wants their tree topped and eventually for the tree, if that tree's end destiny is, it needs to get smaller so it won't fail. Yeah, but I think, you you know... It's all about perspective. The, the tree does it when it needs to and when it gets old and people want it done when it's not necessary or, or not good for the tree. And, and, and yeah. frequently it's a fear... Based that I yeah fear based I, I, and instant gratification. Well, I want it now. Yeah, and, and I've I've always I will I will often return to this as a concept of of, of uh, sales is that people are not thinking about okay let's treat this as a paint job kind of a thing okay it's more of well there was a storm last year and I'm scared. And they're coming from this, you know, this panic gut, you know, BS. And it, it's just not, it's, it's something that we need to put to sleep and go, no, that, okay. Breaking branches is normal. And we're here to help you reduce the chance that that happens. And that's our purpose to help preserve the tree. And well, and I think the way the way forward, and it's and it's a long time coming from my perspective, is that, you know, when someone asks for something that shouldn't be done to a tree, we say no. Yeah. Yeah. But everybody has to say no because until everyone says no, someone will do it, and then we we have this perpetual argument from those people that says, well, if I don't do it, someone else will, so I might as well do it. Yeah. And, yeah. and we never get ahead. And and I would definitely say, you know. We have to do more of that as an industry, if and especially if this industry wants to one day become a profession and want to be viewed as and respected that way. Because until that time, we're just an industry, and we're not we're not acting like professionals. We're not respected like professionals, mm -hmm. and it's because of this disparity amongst us that you know people don't know what an arborist is because an arborist can be that guy with the pickup truck. Or an arborist can be, you know, Klaus Maddock or, you know, Neville Fay, or it can be, you know, it can, it's such a range. But if we were trained and if we agreed and if we had a code of ethics and it was enforced that, you know, we don't top trees because topping trees is bad and it's bad for trees and we know all these things. So homeowner can call 10 arborists and they're all going to say, goodbye, sorry, we're not going to do that for you. Then topping would slowly but surely disappear because yeah. the homeowners aren't going up there to top their trees. We know that. And if no one would, topping would disappear. Yeah. So we need, you know, we have work to do amongst our peers in, in our industry to grow. Uh, and, and people need to learn how to say no. And people need to also learn that the client isn't always right. And you can walk away from a client, and guess what? There's lots more. <laughs> yeah, I, I ran into a situation like that just the other day. the The guy had a he had a really old uh, filbert tree in his backyard, and he he had power washed out the cavity. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really interested in how how far he could cut the tree down. And I explained to him, 
it's you know it's a process that wouldn't just be a we would come one time and just hack it down to 10 inch cut and um, then we went to the front yard and we looked at this really nice magnolia that he had and I was like wow this is a beautiful tree and he said I I, I was hoping you weren't going to say that <laughs> he's like well don't you think I could cut that tree right there you know looking at like a 14 inch diameter he said, I did that a long time ago. I had a guy come out and I said, I could tell because how it's responded. But, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm not going to write you an estimate for um, pruning outside industry standards. And I honestly don't even want to write you an estimate at all because I don't think you would appreciate the way that we care for your tree. And he kind of lit up and sort of stared at me. And I said, you can you can sure as hell go find somebody and you can stand there and tell them to cut there, but I'm not going to send a crew here to do that for you. Yeah. Nice. For you. Yeah. That's awesome. There, there's, there's a number of, of trees over the years, uh, that, that has been my response or uh, I know other, uh, bidders within the company's response and they're still standing and you can go by and go, Hey, it's still up. Hey, cool. buddy. <laughs> now, one of the things that I find fascinating, um, the, the um, storm damage and taking something that has been just mauled by a, a windstorm, an ice storm or snowstorm or whatever, and lopping it back, lopping a beautiful old tree back to... You know, major, major cuts that to anybody who didn't know that the tree had been through a storm, they'd say it was topped. And yet, if you take that, you just say, well, I'm either going to top it or I'm going to do crown reduction or I'm going to, you know, you, you have to define this, go this fine line between crown reduction and storm damage pruning and um, uh, complete removal. And it sucks. It really, it's really a horrible kind of a, a, you know, it's all or nothing. And yet, you know, 30 years ago, I probably would have said, well, it's so badly mangled, uh, we're going to, you know, I'm going to recommend taking it down. Whereas nowadays, I'm, I'm saying, well, you know, this is what we're left with. And the storm has is, is done, uh, done its work. And we're going to need to make some huge cuts. And we're going to need to follow through with other cuts as, as the years go on. And just, you know, only been in business 30 years, but it's still a fascinating um, moment where you realize that's what the options are. Yeah, I, I had that realization probably there was a storm, I think it was probably eight or 10 years ago. And I remember I found myself pretty much topping a bunch of oak trees that were just ripped out at that level. So I was just going up and cleaning up the cut and we were just, you know, getting stuff done real quick. And as at the end of the day, I was realizing like, man, I topped a bunch of trees today. It's pretty, and I had to, you know, it, it's better than removing it because it will sprout out and it'll form another canopy. And you know, but there's a lot of times where I was leaving like big six foot stubs because I was like, well, I'd rather it decay back over time instead of have just a cut right on the trunk. Yep. And it made me realize because I was so critical for so many years of the arborists in this area back in the 60s and 70s because there's all these trees that were clearly top back then. And then I it realized there, the Columbus Day storm. There's a couple really big storms back in that time that just devastated the trees in the area. 
And I was like, maybe it, maybe these guys weren't just topping every, I mean, there clearly were people topping back then, but I started thinking how much of that was people just cleaning up after these big storms. And, you know, are people going to be looking at back at me like, man, those guys really topped a bunch of trees in, you know, 2015 or whenever it was, you know, that, that, uh, that ice storm when we were all working at the U of O. Yeah. Um, they have that really nice grove of uh, English oaks right in front of the library. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking the same. That's mm-hmm. when you mentioned the storm damage that came immediately to mind because we were making massive. Cuts. We probably had this conversation yeah, back then. Just, <laughs> you know, and, th- you know, I was just cutting just right behind where the biggest cut, uh, natural pruning cut was anyway. And thinking that this tree looks horrible that we probably should just cut it down. And you can actually go and look. The the trees that I started with, I pruned a lot, or I you know, just did the storm damage a lot harder. And I you know, only was cutting the least amount towards the end. So yeah. every time I go through the courtyard of that place, I mean, the tree that I pruned the hardest is still doing fine. You can look back at your own education. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, you know, and those are situations where nature has dealt us a hand that we have to deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think it, yeah, it's, we all know that that's not topping because topping is indiscriminate. We were, yeah. you have yeah. to do, but the result is the same. It feels like it when you look at it. it. Be the same, <laughs> yeah. Perspective um, is everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've liked, I, you know, I've looked at, the, you know, and I, I, what you guys are describing is what I, you know, how I would look at storm damage trees to take out the absolute minimum. And I don't, I, I've worked in storm damage trees where I didn't even cut back to, you know, collar cuts or anything. I just like cut the weight off, mm-hmm. leave the broken shit and wait. That's yeah. the real thing is wait and let the yeah. tree tell first you. stage of retrenchment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, and that's such a big thing that, you know, we feel like we know what's best for these trees when these trees were doing it for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years before millions. we were ever here. Yeah, millions. Yeah, that's a, before we were ever here. We could, we could end right there. Think about the trees and what they know. Don't think about what us humans think is good for trees. What's good for trees, you know? It's a big difference, and and yeah, we've learned some things, and certainly there are things that the arboricultural world does that are beneficial for trees. But if we never showed up, there'd still be trees here, guaranteed, you know, oh, yeah. and uh, and they're still managing. <laughs>